Sam, can we t- tweak it slightly and, and just get a different theme with our in- Instagram page and just have every day a different picture of us posing with our butt cheeks? <laughs> because as you know, I work in the fitness industry and I find it remarkable that there are people on Instagram with millions of followers and all they do every day is a picture of their ass in a different location. I'll give you a half and half with this. You can take a... F- I can have one butt cheek. You can have, you can have a photo of your bum on our Instagram every day, but it has to have a speech bubble coming out of it telling an incorrect historical fact. Hashtag Tom's talking out of his ass. <laughs> <laughs> Should we just troll the fitness industry on Instagram? You just put up a picture of a giant chest of gold with hashtag booty gains. <laughs> <laughs> Arr. Arr. I'm going to go to my Pirates class now. Arr. Hello everyone, Sam here. If you like this podcast, would you do us a favour and subscribe and review us on your favourite app? It'll really help us grow. Right, that's quite enough begging. Let's get on with the podcast. Hello, Tom! Hello, Sam. How are you? I'm fabulous, Tom. How are you doing? I'm very good, Sam. It's This is a bit of a flip reversal, isn't it? Because it's my morning and your evening. It is. We've just messed it all up. We've messed with our heads. Water started running the wrong way. The sun sets in the morning and everything is wrong and the apocalypse is here. The end of days. Um, I've had a cup of tea as well, so I'm a little bit more perky than I'd normally be. I usually do this at about 10 o'clock in the evening on a Friday. Um, But it's Monday morning, I'm fresh, I've had some tea, I've got some juice next to me, I'm ready to roll. Wonderful, and I've just come back from a slightly heavy weekend in Cornwall and therefore we'll be talking slower and slightly more sleepily than normal. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Let's see how this goes. Yes. Now, what's our topic? What did we agree upon? Con men, wasn't it? Con men. Episode six is all about historic con men. And what a brilliant bloody topic. Thank you very much. I did think so. My compliments to the topic, chef. (laughs) Thanks. And who did you choose? Ah, now I have chosen history's greatest con man, Gregor McGregor. So good they named him twice. Yeah, that's a little bit like Edward Woodward, isn't it? (laughs) It is a bit like Um, Edward Woodward. So so I hadn't heard of this chap, Gregor McGregor, but he's widely perceived as one of the greatest con men ever, is he? Yes, he is. He is a man who scammed thousands of people out of millions of pounds whilst causing hundreds of deaths. So um, all round, an (laughs) an impressive legacy of destruction. All on his own? All on his Todd. Wow, so he didn't have a country to help him, you know, like uh, Pol Pot. <laughs> like he did it all on his own. <laughs> well, it's funny that you should mention that, Tom, because his scam, as we will shortly find out, was to create his own country. Oh, how have I never heard this? Yeah. This is going to be great fun. Um, I've gone... Because we've done a lot of... What's the oldest thing we've done so far? It's 2700, and it was your story. I forgot the names. It was the goddess Ishtar and her love story from ancient Sumerian times. Almost 3,000 years BC. I'm now going to do the latest thing we've done. We do, we've done Second World War with uh, old Leo Majeur and Willie Arsenal. <laughs> and I'm, I'm coming even later. I'm going into the 1980s Brazilian football, Sam. Many would consider that not history. Oh, Sam. But I will. (laughs) Not history. Anything that's just happened is history, Sam. Anything that's just happened. Um, I wasn't originally going to do this, chap. So when I suggested con men, I'd discovered some other good stories. But I stumbled across this individual and just thought it was very colourful and thought it would add another dimension to our podcasts. So, yes. Well, I'm I'm happy to go with it. I think an 80s Brazilian footballer sounds excellent. And, in fact, my story today takes place in South America as well. Oh, there you go. A nice South American flavour. Are we going to toss something South American to decide who goes first? (laughs) Um, Do I have anyone South American to hand to toss is the the question. Manuel? Manuel, (laughs) where are you, Manuel, when I need you? Uh, (laughs) Right. I was thinking of a straw donkey. Or I don't uh, have a straw donkey, but in fine tradition, I actually had my wallet with me today. But in tradition, uh, I will not be tossing something from my wallet. Okay, so what have you got available in front of you? Today, Tom, we are going to be flipping my passport. Oh, excellent. Very good. 
Have you got one of those new digital ones? I do have one of these new digital ones. It has a photo of me that actually looks like me, unlike my old passport, which had a photo of me with shoulder-length blonde curly hair. Oh, dear. It was a bet that I lost, and uh, it is the worst photo in the world. I'll put it up on our Instagram so that you can see just how awful I used to look. Yeah, that is, I do remember that hair, I think, Sam. It wasn't the greatest, was it? It was not the greatest look. Okay, so you flip your passport. Uh, what, I'll say we got the front would be uh, the British crest, would it? The front would be the British crest. I am going to fold it open so it's either the British crest or a Chinese visa. Excellent. When did you go to China? I went to China in July this year. Good. A holiday or business? A holiday. And it was absolutely lovely. I had a wonderful time. Despite its dubious human rights records, it's an amazing country to visit. And having said that, I will never be invited back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, let's flip it. Let's flip the passport. Uh, I'm go I don't know if anyone heard that, so I'm going to just rustle it against the microphone. There we go. Ooh, passporty. Uh, which side are you calling, Tom? <laughs> um, I'm calling Chinese visa. Uh, unfortunately, it landed on the crest. Her Majesty's own crest. Um, so I'm going to let you go first. My decision is... Your decision is excellent. Yeah, I structured that sentence very badly for a native English speaker. <laughs> My decision yeah, is, yeah, I'm was... going to let you go first. <laughs> That's more like it. There was no awkward pause after Words that. I use. Thank you. Words I use well. It was <laughs> just a pause. I was just waiting. Surely there is more to come. No, 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 there's just a pause. Okay. It's very late on a Sunday it's, for me. It's like when your granddad gives you an anecdote, isn't it? And it just comes to a... a unsatisfying end <laughs> slightly less racism than uh... <laughs> grandparents yeah slightly more casual racism anyway as I've mentioned Brazilian football in the 1980s let's just set the scene here Sam Brazil as we all know is a country synonymous with the game of football even I know that even well <laughs> I was thinking this would be quite funny Sam doing a football subject because <laughs> I you, you're, you're not an unsporty person, are you, Sam? You're an active person, but you're not like a gamesy person. You don't follow cricket, I'm not. football, rugby. No, not at all. I still think that if you ask me who England's goalkeeper was, I would say David Seaman. And that's not even joking. <laughs> and, and you only know that because his surname has innuendo, you know, it's a bit innuendo, isn't it? So... I might have to do quite a lot of explaining around football terms. So we'll see how we go here. That's fine. Take your time. We've got an hour. We'll see how we go. So let's set the scene. 1980s Brazilian football. The Brazilian national team had won the World Cup three out of four times between 1958 and 1970. Who won the fourth? Come on, Sam. Um, what years are we talking? So this is between 1958 and 1970. So it would have been 58, 62, 60. Ooh, ooh, I know this. Go on. Was it England? <laughs> Oh, well done, Sam. Excellent. I can do football. I'm a lads, lads, lads. <laughs> yeah, well done. Good work. So, yes, the only the only other team was England that won it then. And I'm going to talk about Carlos Enrique Raposo, also known as Carlos Kaiser. And he was called Carlos Kaiser after Franz Beckenbauer. Have you heard of Franz Beckenbauer? No. He was a famous German defensive midfielder slash sweeper from the 1970s uh, widely regarded as one of the greatest players of all time and uh, his nickname was Kaiser and uh, supposedly the two of them had a, a bore of resemblance so uh, Carlos Enrique Raposo was was called Carlos Kaiser so he was good looking charismatic uh, he was frequently in the newspapers and on television. He had a beautiful mullet, which was um, <laughs> essential for any player of the 1980s. Yes, now you're talking language that I understand. Now you're in my historical <laughs> cultural ballpark, because if there's anything I know, it's an 80s mullet. It's a beautiful 80s mullet. That's going to be hot on the streets of Rio, though, isn't it? Absolutely, and, and hot in all the right senses, Sam. Oh, this, yes. He was a ladies' man, this guy. Business at the front, pleasure at the back. Sweaty all over. <laughs> yeah. What's that? What do they call it? What's it? Part? What do they call it? Formal at the front, party at the back. Is that, <laughs> is that, that's that's the mullet, isn't it? And Carlos Kaiser, he got his first contract with the team in Mexico at the age of sixteen. I mean, the, this guy was—he um, uh, came from nothing, so he had adopted parents. He was basically just left out on the streets by his original parents. And he was brought up kind of in pretty much a favela. I think he was brought up in some area between two of them. But he basically had a pretty rough background, was, was brought up playing football on the streets of Rio with whatever he could find. 
and at the age of 16 got his first contract in Mexico. He went on to play for all of the major Rio de Janeiro clubs. Let's go through these and see if I can pronounce them properly. Uh, Botafogo, <laughs> Fluminense, Flamengo and Vasco da Gama. You could literally have strung any number of consonants together there and I would be none the wiser. <laughs> no, as far as I'm aware, you've just read out some nonsense Roald Dahl poem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the beauty of this topic, Sam. Yes. I could talk anything and you you wouldn't be able to question it. Oh, my favourite team is Flobbledob Athletic. Flobbledob Athletic, very nice. He also went on to play in France with a team called Gazelec Ajaccio. I probably haven't pronounced that very well. Do you want to t- let's try that again in a more French accent? Gazelec Ajaccio. Is that better? I was transported to the to the terraces with a baguette in hand <laughs> and a glass of wine or whatever they do at French football <laughs> matches, a baguette pie. The French are quite different to the British when it comes to sporting events, aren't they? Have you ever watched Six Nations rugby? They don't set fire to nearly as many things. <laughs> no, <laughs> Not no, nearly the, as many bus Italians stops get trashed. English have got that. <laughs> Honourable mention to the Russians as well. <laughs> yeah. If you ever watch the Six Nations when one of the uh, home nations plays France? I have at some point in the past, but you'll you'll have to fill everyone in again on this and me. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's quite funny because whenever they whenever for example England in the Six Nations, which for those of you who are not from the UK is uh, a big rugby tournament played annually. In fact, Sam, I think the Six Nations is one of the biggest spectator sports in the world for the number of people following it at, at the actual stadiums. Anyway, the Six Nations, so if, for example, England go and play France in France, the French footage always pans to um, someone with a beret on the sidelines painting the match. <laughs> it, always has, it, has a very, it has a very French feel to it. Surely you should have someone on the sidelines miming the match in a beret. <laughs> Which, by the way, I would love to see. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would love to see someone receiving a high tackle as a you know a mine receiving a high tackle that'd be fantastic Ooh, being dump tackled I was about to say you could have a group of mimes but that would kind of defy the point of being a mime what you're essentially doing with a large group of mimes is you've just removed the ball from the game of rugby <laughs> <laughs> Sam, if you've ever played low-level rugby before in the UK, you don't really need a ball, to be honest, Sam. It's not too dissimilar to what you've just described. Believe me, I have. I was forced to play it at school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, random fighting in different corners of the pitch, people running aimlessly. <laughs> yeah, That's the game of rugby. It's beautiful to watch it at a high level, pretty shit to watch it at a low level. Anyway... So, uh, Carlos Kaiser plays a little bit in the French second division. He plays in Texas. This, how's this for a football team's name? For the El Paso Six Shooters. <laughs> Only Americans could come up with that as a football team name, couldn't they? No offence to any of our American listeners out there, particularly those based in El Paso, but that is the worst bloody team name I have heard in my life. I'm trying very hard, by the way, not to drop an F-bomb here, but that is a pretty... Flipping bad team name. Hey guys, let's go watch El Paso Six Shooters. The, the, the Americans have tried to tried to change up football quite a few times, haven't they? They've they've proposed changes to the game to make it more American, um, where you can score more points from different parts of the pitch and all these sort of things. <laughs> they've tried to ruin it, is what they have. And they basically have, haven't they, Sam? It's like when you speak to an American about cricket. You explain to them that a Test cricket match you can play for five days and it'll end, it'll end in a draw. They just look confused. You'd have, I would look confused. I do look confused. You know, you don't like cricket. Oh, you don't like cricket. I cannot, for the <laughs> life of me, understand. I, I, you're, I know you're loving this, but I have. I do. I cannot, for the life of me, fathom why anyone would spend five days watching two groups of men. You can't even tell what side they're on unless you're racially profiling them because they wear the same bloody colour. <laughs> They break every so often for sandwiches, which I believe are traditionally prepared by the wives of the players. And then at the end of five days, everyone goes home. Ah, it's great. And you may or may not have a winner. And the, the, the weather may have, may have ruined things a little bit for you. But Sam, cricket is, is like life, Sam. You can slog each other's guts out for five <laughs> days. And you know what? There is no result. That's life, Sam. You can try your hardest for long periods of time in all sorts of different weather. And you know what? You come to the end of it and nobody's really won. That is cricket. 
it's a long, hard struggle with very little reward at the end. It's great. I love I love watching cricket. Anyway, let's get back. So we've got the <laughs> El Paso Sig Shooters, and he also plays in Mexico as well. So he, he plays he plays in a number of countries and for some big clubs, the, the big four Rio de Janeiro clubs. They're quite famous clubs. The, this is the problem, though, Sam. He didn't really play for any of them. What? Carlos Kaiser wanted to be a footballer, but he didn't want to play football. <laughs> he was basically, I mean, it is the theme for this week is con artists. So, you know, he basically was a big con artist. Let's try and pick out what's true here. He did sign contracts for these clubs that I've mentioned. He did play for teams in different parts uh, of the world. Um, he was a good player when he was younger. When he was 16, he was a good football player. But he was a chronic liar during his career and after his career. And so it's quite difficult to work out what's true and what's not true with his story. He just jumped from club to club. He never really played any matches. And he managed this for 13 years. So, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's, how, did, how did he manage to get away with being transferred from club to club? Because even as a non-football fan, I understand that your value in football as a football player inherently comes and arises from your ability to play football as demonstrated by your appearance in occasional matches of the game football. Absolutely. And he, he this guy had fantastic tricks. He wouldn't get away with it today with widespread media. He was able to get away with it back in the 80s because nobody could really question him. Nobody could go on YouTube and, and question the fact that he said he played for a certain club or go on Wikipedia and find out, you know, who plays for that team. Yeah, but they could have rung the clubs and checked. Yeah, yes, that is true. There's certainly a lack of a lack of due diligence by some of the clubs you can't help but feel. Is there any explanation for how he managed to get away with this? Absolutely. This is what I'm going to come on to. So he, he had various tactics for achieving this, and they are really quite amusing. Back in Rio de Janeiro... There's a term for sort of street smart hustlers, and it's a malandro, someone who's charismatic, witty, sharp, um, intelligent, and can manipulate people. And he was basically one of these people. I mean, just the mullet alone would have given him all of those. Oh, yeah, definitely charisma. A mullet can definitely yes. give you charisma. So he had various ruses that he adopted. The first one was just a feign injury, quite simply. It was certainly in the early part of his career, he was fit. So he would turn up to a club, he would start their pre-season training, which is generally where you don't kick a football around too much, you just do lots of fitness training, and he would excel at the fitness training. And what would then happen is as they phased into into the season, he would deliberately get injured or he would feign an injury so that he didn't have to play any matches or he didn't have to kick a ball around. Even, there's, I mean, even an example towards the end of his career when he's playing for a club called Palm, Palmeiras, I think, again, I do apologise for my pronunciations um, of all of these Brazilian names. And he actually offers a defender um, during a training session a payment to slide tackle him and injure him just to get out of playing. And this con starts from his very first club. This starts from the first club called Puebla in Mexico when he was 16. He, he started feigning injuries. I don't know why. Why did he want to be a footballer but didn't want to play football? Well, I think we're going to get onto this. I oh, think sorry. He just likes <laughs> it. Oh, no, no, no. I, did, I didn't mean... I mean, I, I, I did feel like I should probably ask the question at some point. Why did he do this? He was a good footballer. He just... Well, I, th I think he wasn't good enough. I mean, this is Brazil we're talking about. So he, he was probably what we would consider to be a good standard footballer, someone who could play lower league football, but he was never talented enough to get to the top tier and actually make a living out of it. But he wanted the girls, he wanted right. the, to go to the clubs, he wanted the lifestyle, he wanted the influence, and probably also the money. <laughs> so so I think this is where it all came from. He probably had a realisation early in his career that he probably wasn't good enough to make it and actually make a living out of it. Anyway, so feigning injuries was one of his tricks, but he was a lot cleverer than that. He actually developed a network of journalists as well through his career, and those journalists would write completely make-believe articles about him that he would print off and take with him to different clubs to get himself um, signed up for the contracts. <laughs> so, as an example, this is when he, again, this is Puebla, his Mexican team, when he was only 16, he got a journalist to write an article about um, how he was offered Mexican citizenship to play for Mexico because they loved him so much, which is complete bollocks, um, <laughs> as, as far as my research tells me. He also had a short period of playing in France, as I've mentioned, and... When he returned to Brazil, when he was looking to return to Brazil, he got a journalist to write an article portraying him as the club's top scorer for eight years. He never played a match. 
(laughs) (laughs) He never played a match for this French club, let alone scored a goal. And he had that network of journalist friends, but he also had a network of famous... That is pretty good. It is. He was just a bare-faced liar. Props to the guy. He just... Absolutely. And and obviously nobody checked this. Nobody decided to pick up the phone and phone the club and ask. And he just said, this is what I am. They believed him. And he had a network of famous Brazilian footballers as friends as well. I'll give you a list of these, Sam. I, you're probably not going to know any of these, but some people listening may know some of these names. <laughs> I'll make a cup of tea whilst you read these off. <laughs> yeah. Carlos Alberto Torres, he was the captain of the 1970 Ooh. Brazilian World Cup winning team. He's a famous player. Ricardo Rocha played ah. in the 1990 and 1994 World Cups for Brazils. They won the 1994 World Cup, Sam. Renato Gaucho had 41 caps for Brazil. In fact, Renato Gaucho... So this is the sort of thing that Carlos Kaiser would do. So Renato Gaucho tried to get into a club one evening, a Rio club, at about 3am, so actually one morning. And he's told by the bouncers to stop being such a big fibber because Renato Gaucho is already in the club. It wasn't Renato Gaucho who was in the club. It was Carlos Kaiser. So he would actually impersonate his Brazilian famous footballer friends to get into clubs. And not only that, Sam, he actually slept with girls pretending to be Renato Gaucho and got Renato oh, Gaucho in trouble with his wife. pretended to be a Brazilian footballer (laughs) so he actually got in trouble with his wife this guy oh a lad he's certainly a bit of a trickster he also pretended to be famous footballers there was an Argentinian player that played for an Argentinian club called Independiente probably haven't pronounced that right either it was called Carlos Enrique you've not made this one easy for yourself have you <laughs> oh no no I'm not you're not doing the accents either I'm most disappointed oh I, I, I can you do a Brazilian accent I don't actually know what a Brazilian accent sounds like it would just be Spanish wouldn't it well I sort of ended up being a Portuguese. bit Italian when I tried yeah <laughs> Anyway, so he would pretend to be Carlos Enrique, who was an Argentinian football player who played for a completely different club. And that club had won uh, lots of competitions in 1984, including the Intercontinental Cup against Liverpool in 1984. And so he would he would pretend to be this person because nobody could see the... F- you know, there was no clear footage of this player playing. Mm. And so he could... Could be any guy with a mullet. Well, basically, and his name was Carlos Enrique. So if he had audio recording of a commentator shouting, and Carlos Enrique has scored, he could play that and people would think it was him. He also pretended to be a Brazilian under-21 player called Enrique and actually had press cuttings and video footage of this guy that he would carry around and give to people to get contracts at clubs. Um, And best of all, he once judged a beauty contest with two other famous footballers and he pretended to be a player called Carlos Eduardo, who was actually black. (laughs) (laughs) And he got away with it. So he actually (laughs) pretended to be someone who was a completely different race to him and got away with it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That is ballsy. It is ballsy. That's, that whole incident pretty much sums this guy up. Sleazy beauty contest judging, pretending to be someone who's completely different. So he got these opportunities with these famous footballers who he mingled with, and he sort of the, the more he went from club to club, the more players he was able to mingle with. So he tr- created this nice network. And he was also then able to connect and network with more influential people in football, so club owners, sponsors, all those sort of people. There's a funny incident later on in his career with this chap called Bebeto when he was playing for Vasco da Gama, where uh, he was actually a bit past it. Later on in his career, he was a bit heavy, a bit too much drinking, a bit too much sleeping with the girls. He had lost that that famous pre-season fitness that he used to be able to show off. And the, the team were in training and they were playing a game. It's a very, very simple, common game uh, played in football training, where a, a group of players are passing the ball around in a circle and one player is in the middle trying to get the ball. So it's basically piggy in the middle. <laughs> Carlos Geiser basically gets stuck. <laughs> he gets stuck in the middle because <laughs> he's so shit and he's so unfit and he's, he's surrounded by such talented football players. He's just running around like a headless chicken, um, completely unable to get the ball. Oh, that, what you've done there, Tom, in two sentences is summed up my entire primary and secondary school PE and sports lesson experience <laughs> in one sentence, which <laughs> it's quite heartening really to know that I could have been a professional footballer and still been in that situation. I know. If, uh, you just just needed that little bit more. I mean, you are a charismatic guy, Sam. There's a little bit of Kaiser in all of us. Yeah, yeah. You just needed a little bit more, a little bit more of that charisma. <laughs> 
he did get caught out a little bit. He was playing for Fluminense, and he got caught by the coach. And this is a coach who'd, who'd coached the Brazilian football team, and he spotted him straight away and was like, who is this donkey? Who is this donkey that is turning up to my training sessions? And he gave him the boot. <laughs> so, so he wasn't. It wasn't all rosy. I didn't think to tell the other clubs in Rio that. Well, I suppose actually it's to his benefit to not tell the other clubs in Rio, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, have this donkey. Absolutely. I'll put you on trial for. Uh... Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Please take it. I'm going to give it. I'll, I'll give you a really good deal on him. It's a free transfer. <laughs> it's a free. Yeah, free transfer. Well, that was good, Sam. That was good. That was like a, a technical term that you used there in football, a free transfer. Maybe I'm just not letting on my <laughs> deep and intense love and knowledge of the beautiful game. Oh His trial at this French club, he got as a result of another famous footballer called Fabio Barros. Uh, but I can't help but feel, Sam, that there was a bit of leveraging going on here. So I think we get the impression with Carlos Kaiser that he was very charismatic and fun to be around. So he got away with a lot of things because people actually enjoyed being with him because he was a bit of a party animal. But there is suggestion, maybe, that he was leveraging people as well. So when he was at this French club, the captain of the French team was very straight-laced. And Carlos Kaiser would arrange parties with prostitutes, girls, etc. And this straight-laced captain of the, of the French football team ended up wandering off with a hooker. And from what I've read... Carlos Kaiser used that. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that we shouldn't stick the word allegedly in here. Yeah, this is in the 1980s. This it? is the rumour. I'm sure they're both still alive and therefore it never happened. <laughs> yes. This, yeah. There's sort of allegations. It's allegedly suspicions maybe that he was leveraging these people as well to get himself um, longer contracts, etc. It's sort of the case that he, he had nothing to lose. He was a single guy fucking around, basically being a con artist. But the other people did have something to lose. So he potentially had a bit there. There were a few other things he attempted. So when he was playing for a club called Bangu, Bangu, and that is the club's name, Bangu, the club owner got a bit fed up with him and, said, and demanded that he play as a substitute in a match. And uh, Carlos Kaiser was thinking, oh, shit, this is, I'm going to be, my ruse will be up. I can't, I can't do this. So as he's warming up, up and down the touchline, he hears the opposition crowd uh, yelling a bit of abuse, which is a South American football match. I don't think that's particularly uncommon having, having watched South American football on TV. <laughs> and so he decided to climb over the fence and start a fight with the crowd, knowing that he'd get sent off and he wouldn't have to play. Smart. Get the shit kicked out of him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he took a few hits for that one. Just to top things off, Sam, after the match, but he's such a smart Alec, he actually, in the changing rooms, was confronted by the club owner who said, why the hell did you do that? And Carlos Kaiser then explains that they were insulting his mother. They were insulting the club owner and the club owner's mother and all these sort of things have been really unpleasant. And so after he explains that to the club owner, the club owner extends his contract. <laughs> talk about talk about turning a negative into a positive. What a man. What happened to him, Tom? What happened to him? He's now, actually, I think he's a fitness trainer now. He works out of a gym as a fitness trainer. And by all accounts, he trains female bodybuilders. And so he's basically <laughs> still being a lech. <laughs> but he is still alive. And so therefore, I feel like we should say, unless go- he's admitted publicly that he's done all this, that it's all a story. <laughs> It's all alleged. Has he ever commented on this? How I stumbled across this is it's actually been made into a film. In in 2018, it was made into a film. And there's also a book that was written in 2018 as well. And I completely stumbled across this story. I haven't never heard it before. It's actually a film. It's a book. He's been quite open about it. You can go on the internet and see the trailer for the film. I absolutely, I may have got some of the some of the bits of information slightly incorrect. But the, the generally, this is all <laughs> this is all open. This is all out there. Interestingly, it doesn't seem to be that unusual in South American football in the 80s to have a slightly loony character in your football team. Some clubs seem to have that person because they were just good for morale. They would be the person that arranged the social media events and was always there on the pitch just mucking around and occasionally they, they would train with the club. Uh, basically the mascot. Yeah, or... exactly right. They were basically the mascot of the team. But they just... <laughs> it's just some mad bloke who hangs around with you, like the local like the local character at a village pub. Yeah, or the village cricket team. Going back to the subject of cricket, if you've ever played village cricket, there's always some freaking nutcase. Do you know what? This is how desperate my, my little village... So my family live in the New Forest and my dad passed away a few years ago. But when he was alive, he only had one leg. He only had one leg when he was dead as well. <laughs> but um, he only had one leg when he was alive. I forgot that. And our village cricket team was so desperate for players that they tried to recruit my one-legged father as a cricketer. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, dear. I'm sure he... Now, Sam, I this is disappointing, Sam, because had you known much about cricket, I could have cracked a fantastic joke and we could have... Is both... this something about a short leg? 
<laughs> Even better, I was uh, going to go and did he field at fine leg. I don't um, know. It's um, part, I, I'm sure it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it was a cracking joke, Sam, but I had to pull out. I had to pull out because I knew you wouldn't really get it. For any cricket fans listening, uh, do send in the sound of your laughter. <laughs> <Anyway>. And <laughs> we'll put some of it up on social media just to prove <laughs> it was a funny joke. I'm going to have to take your word for it. Field, fielding positions in cricket are one of the funniest things, I think, for people who don't know much about cricket. The names are very, very strange. They have some bizarre names, don't they? Yeah, leg leg slip, gully, <laughs> short mid-off, short mid-on, square leg, deep mid-wicket. Uh, uh, they're very odd. It sounds like the bloody shipping forecast. It is, absolutely, it is very odd if you don't know the game of cricket. Gully, it's, it's very odd. It's very odd if you put yourself in the shoes of someone who's never followed cricket. So, yeah, anyway, go back to Carlos Kaiser. So the writers, I think it was the writers of the film, spoke to um, an Oxbridge psychologist. I may have this information slightly wrong, but I think I read it somewhere. And this psychologist said that this Carlos Kaiser guy was a top, top con artist, based on all of the things he managed to achieve. Right up with there with the chap Frank um, Abba, Frank Abagnale Abig- Jr. Abagnale, yeah. yeah. How do you pronounce it, Abagnale? Abagnale, I think is how they pronounce it in the film. Catch me if you can. Yes, yes. Played, of course, by Le- Leo DiCaprio. Yes. Excellent film yes. with Tom Hanks. Is it got Tom Hanks in it? I haven't seen that film for a while. Yeah, he's the FBI guy who's trying to catch him, I think. Ah, very good. Well, if it's got Tom Hanks in it, it's got to be good. So there is the story, Sam, of Carlos Kaiser. Amazing. What an absolute lad and probably a sociopath, but what an absolute lad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Definitely a sociopath. Absolutely. And who plays him in this film? Who who plays him in the film of his life? It's not a big film. It's not It's not got any big stars in it, Sam. It's one of those films that, you know, you, you pick up in DVD and it, it could be very good, but it's, it's never going to make much money at the cinemas. So I don't think it has any A-listers, B-listers or C-listers starring in it. Because you want kind of a... A Dolph Lundgren type for him, wouldn't you? The kind of oh, <laughs> he's a suave German-looking guy who's very charismatic. Dolph and all Lundgren. he does is stare at you and say words, and you believe everything that's happening. Back in the eighties, Sam Dolph Lundgren was like your D-list action hero, wasn't he? He was your D-list action star. You had Sly Stallone and Arnie. They were your top-level ones. Perfect to play a D-list footballer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely perfect to play a D-list. And then you have your, you know, you got your, your B list would be someone like Steven Seagal or uh, Jean Claude. Maybe Jean Claude would be good for it. Jean Claude Van Damme, yeah. Particularly in the scene where he impersonates the black footballer, I think would be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. How I'm did that sure, play yeah. out? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how that worked. Oh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. So I like Dolph. I like Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. Did you ever watch He Man? Back in the in the uh, late eighties. Oh yeah, you've seen you've seen He Man. You've seen He Man the film. How how Dolph Lundgren gets through a whole film putting on a deep voice without getting a bit croaky. Um, <laughs> he's always speaking like this. He's always putting on a deep voice. Just an awful lot of strepsils. Other throat soothing sweets are available. Well, what a fascinating what a fascinating guy. We'll have to see if we can find some of those newspaper clippings and put some up on uh, on social media. Or more importantly, a picture of his mullet. I think there are there are pictures of his mullet up. How would you know that it's his mullet, though, and not the mullet of some other famous footballer? <laughs> That's true. Oh, we could go down the rabbit hole with this one. Do you think mullets have a life of their own? Yes. Do you think the mullets... Are they like wands in Harry Potter? Does the mullet choose the owner, not the owner choose the mullet? I think so. I think you have to be one of the chosen few to, to wear the mullet. I think the mullet is bigger than any man. Let's move on, Sam. I promise never to do anything sporty again. No, you can do sporty <laughs> things, but you can do sporty things, but just don't try and get me to engage with it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem. Just talk at me. Talk at me. I'll nod and say, hmm, <laughs> beautiful game. Goal! I thought the winning team were good. I tell you what, Sam, I'm going to give you a bit of tuition now and I'm going to give you some help for next time you're walking in the park and you stumble across a game of Sunday football and you feel like you want to stand on the sideline and interact. <laughs> now, the first thing I would like you to shout, I would I would just like you to occasionally shout down the line. Down the line, like, I will... Down I'll... the line, just go, down the line! Down the down line, the line. Is, is, is you sort of pass the ball... Down the line. Forwards and close to the sideline, basically. You can also shout man on. That's another one. Try that, please. Man on. Good. Excellent. That was well done. Man on means there's someone behind you going to try and tackle you. So you can shout man on. 
That's a good one. <laughs> I try to think of some other one. There are certain clubs quite near me where that's also a useful phrase to shout at certain times of the night. <laughs> what sort of public toilets? <laughs> Two in the morning when you're walking home from the club and one of your mates walks into the toilet and you shout, Man up! <laughs> oh, I'll try that one next time you're in a sauna. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry Sam, I'm now going to stop the, the football references. You, you go on, what, what was, who is your con artist? Well today Tom, I'm going to talk about a chap called Gregor McGregor. Gregor Magoo. Uh, that second part of the name is not true. <laughs> Gregor McGregor McGregor McGrew. <laughs> yeah, one of the uh, Trumpton firemen along with Hugh Drew, Barney McGrew, Cuthbert Dibble and Drub. Gregor McGregor McGregor McGrew. Gregor McGregor 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 McGrew. Gregor McGregor, who you will be very surprised to learn is Scottish and widely considered to be history's greatest con man. Born in Scotland in 1786. Weird for a Scottish person to be born in Scotland. (laughs) You often find the two correlate. Is it chance? Is it design? Who can say? (laughs) I can't begin to do the maths on that. But yes, Scotsman McGregor was born in Scotland home of the Scots in 1786 and had a very adventurous spirit. He joined the British Army at 16 years old by buying himself an officer's job, which is how you got into officer's positions in the army at the time. You basically had to buy your way in. Just like eBay. Yeah. You know, you did. You had to bid and better regiments would charge more for better positions. So he paid... Is that right? Yeah. So he paid... £450 to become an ensign or standard bearer, which is the the lowest officer job, in the 57th Regiment of Foot. Uh, That's the equivalent of about £35,000 today that his family put up to get him into the army and get him on the path to being a, a good, solid man. You could either buy promotions in the army as you bought your first job, or you could earn them. And very quickly, he established himself as being pretty good and he was promoted to lieutenant within a year before getting a bit bored and paying another £70,000 in today's money to buy himself the rank of captain, uh, which you'd normally have to wait five to seven years for. So he thought, no, I'm I'm good at this. I'm taking this seriously. I'm just going to buy my next job. Sam, can you not help but feel that the British Empire would have been slightly larger had it not had certain systems like this in place. I can't help but feel that it doesn't allow the good to rise to the top. I'm not sure there are many people, Tom, who would say that the British Empire really needed to be larger. <laughs> it didn't It didn't lack ambition in that sense. No, but that's, that's what's remarkable, isn't it? The fact that it was so big and yet it had such a corrupt system in the military. That's bizarre. I've never heard of that before. Well, it's it's kind of genius in a way because what it means is that you have you still had sergeants and you had people within the army who were very experienced soldiers who would spend a long time there and they were the, the sergeants, the corporals, the kind of the non-commissioned officers who would lead really lead the men. And then you had toffs looking for glory who would sit on horses looking pretty, paying huge amounts of money to the army for no pay in return, just the hope of glory and promotion and getting their names noticed by other people in high society, basically funding the army. So the army was funded by people buying the high-paid jobs. So in a way, it was a system that kind of worked. And in the in the very, very senior, very high regiments, uh, there was more of a meritocracy. So in the regiments where it really mattered that you were a good, solid soldier, you would be promoted more on the basis of your ability than money. You could still buy your way in, but some of them would be ludicrously expensive. But um, anyway, so Gregor McGregor very quickly became absolutely obsessed with the idea of rank and having rank and showing off your rank and looking smart. So he was always, and he insisted that every soldier he commanded was always in full dress uniform, wearing medals, marching around like they absolutely owned the place, which caused quite a lot of arguments among his men because, frankly, they didn't always want to be dressed in very uncomfortable full dress uniforms and poncing around wearing medals they thought it made them look stupid for example at the beach so for example at the beach yeah well no it was it was the case that you were not allowed out even in your spare time without being in full dress uniform which made him really very unpopular among his men but he was obsessed with the idea of rank and he married a very wealthy heiress and pissed about in gibraltar and the channel islands with his military unit until the peninsula war kicked off in portugal which was one of the uh, early napoleonic wars and uh, gregor's unit was sent over in 1809 to portugal but he very quickly fell out with his superior officers and was shipped off to the portuguese army 
uh, learning the language and getting a bit of a flavour for the lifestyle. But the arguments with his British superiors got so bad that he was essentially forced to quit the army. He more or less got fired and had to sell his officers' jobs in 1810 and return to Edinburgh with his wife, where he began to claim, and this is the first real record of him being a bit of a con man and a bit of a jack the lad, he started to claim that he'd been a colonel, which he hadn't. He was wearing lots of Portuguese medals he hadn't earned, some of which he'd just completely made up himself. (laughs) Claimed that he was a Portuguese lord, which he wasn't, and started swanning around Edinburgh in a very, very gaudy gold carriage, wearing ridiculous clothes and trying to make a bit of a celebrity of himself. Sorry to go back a little bit, he was able to sell his position, so that's 70 grand he invested, he could actually get back. Yeah, he got it back. So he would sell it to some other dumbass from a private school with wealthy parents. Yeah. That's how it worked. What, and do we know what do we know what medals he had? What medals he made up? So he wore a medal which was a Portuguese order of. I did have it written in my notes, but I'm not going to be able to find it now. I don't think it was a blue sash with a medal that he wore, that was essentially an amalgam of several different Portuguese awards that didn't really exist. Nice. The individual bits and pieces of it did, but the whole thing didn't. He was just making it up as he went along. Is it just things that he liked, like? You know, I would have yeah. the order of the Lego. Yes. <laughs> the order of eating last night's curry takeaway for breakfast. <laughs> We're getting quite an insight into your military career now, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would have great rapport with my... With my <laughs> I, I almost called them underlings, but I'm not sure that would have developed rapport. <laughs> rapport with my inferiors would that help no that wouldn't develop no rapport, that's right? not much better what's a, what's a less condescending term your subordinates my troops my, that's a better name subordinates yeah I would have great rapport with my subordinates you would have the medal of insulting your subordinates patronising whereas my... I would have the big smiley face medal of being very charming to them and treating them as if I respect their opinion whilst clearly not. Would you allow them to take their uniform off when they go to the swimming baths? I would insist on it. They have to swim. <laughs> they, they wouldn't have to swim in full uniform. I would insist on them taking their uniforms off at every available opportunity. So, so, so one of... Right. Whilst parading past the Queen. <laughs> in the nip. <laughs> nip. Whilst charging their... the Germans on the Western Front in World War I. <laughs> with nothing but their bearskin helmets. Oh, Thomas. <laughs> parading in front of Her Majesty. Private parts? Put away your private parts. (laughs) Very good. Very good. The less said about Major Hardon, the better. (laughs) You'd be be the order of the the closet. Major Wood. (laughs) (laughs) Or Major Wood. Right. Enough. Anyway, back on track. I've got a lot to get through. And most of it's more interesting than this. There words i'm completely lost now no actually i'm I'm gonna have to go back again and start this bit again i've missed a bit so yes in 1810 he is this your final attempt sam it was now you've ruined it again so in 1810 so this is your final attempt (laughs) shut up (laughs) so in 1810 gregor is this the one that's gonna make the edit left the army (laughs) you utter bastard Go on, Sam. I'm not so, going to interrupt. I'm not. In 1810, Gregor McGregor left the British Army and returned to Edinburgh with his wife, where he started to claim that he'd been a colonel, wore lots of Portuguese medals he hadn't earned. Oh, we've done this bit. Um, fuck's sake. <laughs> this is what I have to do every Friday evening, Sam. It's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult in the evening. <laughs> oh, God. So he was wearing he all was of these... He going around in his gold chariot. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he was swanning around in this gold carriage trying to make a bit of a celebrity of himself, wearing all of these medals, and it just didn't work. No one was having any of it. They were like, who, who is this guy? And to make matters worse, his wife died in 1811, and in a flash, all of his income was gone. This rich heiress, her family basically cut him off pretty much immediately. They weren't hugely fond of him to begin with. So he had two options. To go back to his Scottish clan, which he thought would be incredibly boring and couldn't imagine anything worse, or to rejoin the army. Now, it couldn't be the British army because he'd just been fired, and it would pretty quickly get out there that he was faking it as a colonel. They would know pretty quickly that he had never been a colonel. So, he went to Venezuela to fight in the War of Independence. Why Venezuela? Seems like a bit of an out there choice, particularly for the early 1800s. Venezuela had a very charismatic general 
who had come to London and been the absolute star of the party. Everyone had wanted to be with him. He had been just the absolute cock of the walk. And so Gregor McGregor thought, I'm having a piece of that. I'm going to go out and join the Venezuelan army and I'm going to come back, the Liberace of my time, I'm going to come back an absolute celebrity and ladies will be swooning over me and I will be rich beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> the Liberace, the Liberace of my generation. What, an outwardly gay piano player? Is that what you're saying? This is a man who covered himself in fake medals and sashes whilst riding around in a golden carriage. <laughs> no, that, actually, no, that's true. That is rather <laughs> extravagant. And then there's Gregor McGregor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, my Venezuelan early modern history isn't too hot. What were they seeking? Who were they seeking independence from? Was that Portugal or Spain or? I th- it was the Spanish. It was the independence movement was fighting the Spanish royalists, Spanish-led royalists, and so okay. the whole period in South America at this time is incredibly complicated. I tried to write out some notes in a way that I could explain it, and I just can't. It would take forever. So suffice to say, the ship was going down there, it was hitting the fan. So in 1812, Gregor sold everything that he owned and headed for South America, uh, announcing himself to the Venezuelan nationalist forces as a British colonel with a celebrated battle history, which his unit had won in the Peninsular War uh, two years after he was fired. (laughs) So completely just making it up as he went along. They believed him and hired him as a colonel, and he actually, to be fair to him, did very well. He very quickly rose to the rank of general in the Venezuelan Independent Army, uh, mostly because they were losing the war really badly at this point and needed lots of experienced officers to replace the ones who were getting killed. And he remarried. He married a local woman. The tides of the war rose and fell, and he travelled between armies in Venezuela and New Granada and various other places, occasionally holidaying in Jamaica, uh, basically making a name for himself. Bit of a journeyman. Yeah, he was. He was essentially a mercenary who would kind of big up his achievements to his next potential employer and hop between places getting work where he could as a general. He did have some pretty major military victories. He defeated a significantly larger Spanish force in Venezuela in 1816 whilst trying to retreat through the mountains. And this was making the headlines in London. So he was becoming quite well known and his initial aim of becoming a bit of a celebrity was it was happening for him. But in 1817 he committed his first real scam, which was boldly to launch an invasion of Florida. Right. <laughs> with help from the USA. Uh, the intention of this was to distract the Spanish from South America. So he went to America, he went to the USA and recruited hundreds of men and over $160,000 in investors' loans to fund a private war with promises of land and cash in the newly conquered territories in Florida, which he said would ultimately join the US. And the scam completely worked. And actually, to be fair, he again had some military successes. He attacked the pirate cove of Amelia Island in northern Florida in spring 1817 with just 80 men and managed to seize it from the Spanish garrison. Pirate cove? A pirate cove, yeah, it was. It was a pirate cove. Oh, I like this, a pirate cove. Yeah. Excellent. So he conquered this pirate cove and then declared this tiny island of three and a half thousand people the Independent Republic of the Floridas. Nice. With himself as the head of state. He started paying his men in Florida dollars, which he completely made up on the spot and started writing out himself. Uh, what, he actually was... I owe you five Florida dollars written on the back of a napkin, yeah. He was sitting on a... Yeah, so he was sitting at his desk and... Just writing them on loo roll, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and he declared the entirety of Florida his domain, despite only controlling one town on a tiny island. Most of the support he'd been promised in the US never showed up in terms of men, but he had all the cash that he'd been given by the investors. So with a Spanish force assembling to uh, retake the island from him, in September 1817, he and his wife took the cash and jumped on a ship, sailing away, shouting goodbye, goodbye, as... Um, all the inhabitants of the island and all of his soldiers and subjects hurled insults at him and said, what are you doing? Why are you running away? Absolutely. Uh, so his kingdom lost... And the pirates took over. Actually, the defenders of the island, his army, beat the Spanish off four or five times until the Americans stepped in and basically gave the island back. I bet they enjoyed that. <laughs> oh, I didn't quite hear what you said, but I, I know what the words get- were. <laughs> Dirty little... Bastard. Yeah, that was yeah, that was a bit vulgar, wasn't it? <laughs> so anyway, he he just took the cash and buggered off, ran off to Jamaica, where he spent quite a lot of the money 
minting himself lots of medals with the Florida flag that he'd just made up on them and the words, I came, I saw, I conquered and liberty for Florida under the glorious leadership of McGregor written on them. Oh, that's genuine. That's not you taking a piss. That's genuinely what he had. No, those are the medals he had made for himself with the $160,000 in American investors' money that he'd stolen. Bear in mind, $160,000, that's 1816 money countless millions of dollars today this guy's got an ego hasn't he he has a bit of an ego he loved a show yeah. he basically loved to big himself up and swan in being the big i am because again as as with kaiser no one can prove otherwise so the next few years saw him again working as a mercenary officer and occasionally leading british expeditions to south america against the spanish but really his heart wasn't in it anymore he he was just in it for the money so he was back in the good books with the british yeah they loved him again but he repeatedly ran away from every fight he got involved in, <laughs> abandoning every every man, every unit he was given command of. He would abandon and just leave them to the Spanish whilst usually running away in a ship, as he'd done before. <laughs> he would always literally run to the end of the harbour, jump on the ship and order it to sail away. He'd kind of lost his bottle a bit, didn't he? He'd lost his mojo, yeah. So on one occasion, he even jumped out of the window on a rope made of bedsheets when the Spanish launched a surprise attack on his garrison, fled out to a ship... The garrison thought, ah, he's gone to get help from the ship and they will fire their cannons at the Spanish. And the ship just turned around and buggered off and left the entire British army to to their deaths. Oh, good God. And how many times did he get away with this before people realised he was just a big coward? Um, I think six. (laughs) Six times he got away with this. More or less, yeah. He just rinsed and repeated until about 1820. You know what this is sounding awfully like, Sam? Go on. This is sounding like the fire Festival, uh, Mm. but about 150 years ago. Yes. Uh, that, that it's an excellent Netflix documentary. It sounds very similar. It gets even more like that because in 1820 he found himself in what's known as the Mosquito Coast in Honduras. Doesn't that sound like a lovely place for a holiday, Tom? Nothing sounds more yeah, inviting mosquito. than the Mosquito Coast. I would go to Pirate Cove in preference. I like the idea of Pirate Cove. It's my favourite themed restaurant. But he found himself at the Court of the Mosquito King, which is a very good name, George Frederick Augustus who was essentially a local chief who'd been made a British puppet king. He had no real power, he had no real territory, but that didn't stop him from selling MacGregor an area of jungle the size of Wales in exchange for a bit of rum and some jewellery. Uh, very easy to sell him an area the size of Wales because he didn't own it. And it was nobody wanted it anyway because it was just covered in mosquitoes. Well, yeah, the land was absolutely worthless. It was apparently very pretty but was agriculturally useless, had nothing useful growing in it, and it was completely disease-ridden. So, of course, what did he do? He named himself the Kazikh, a local word meaning chief, of a new country, Poyais. So he became the Kazikh of Poyais, which is an incredibly exotic-sounding name, especially for a guy who's a bit of a celebrity by this point. So he sailed back to London to start the biggest scam in history. Shit, we haven't even started. We've not even started the good scam or the really bad scam. Far <laughs> out. It was perfect timing. The Napoleonic Wars had just ended in Europe, so the economy was booming and rich Brits were looking for new and exciting opportunities, investments and places to spend their money. The newly crowned Kazik of Poyais, upon appearing in London covered in medals from his time in Florida and looking, as he always did, incredibly dashing, was enormously exciting to them, especially because he was Scottish and so could speak their language and sell his tales. And he became the talk of the town. He was invited to every dinner party to talk about his kingdom, which he promised was a democracy with an army and a civil service. It already had established agriculture. The people, his beloved subjects, had waved him away to London as he promised to bring back the cream of European society and technology to revolutionise this brave new world and bring its untold riches. Tobacco grew there, cotton grew there, the streams ran with gold dust. It was just beautiful. He had uh, flags commissioned, coats of arms commissioned, uniforms designed for all of his imaginary soldiers in his imaginary country, and it was all absolute bollocks. All that he had was this jungle who was given to him by someone who didn't own it. But he went absolutely ham for this though and the brits et it up there's a thin line isn't there there's a thin line between entrepreneurism and con artistry yeah well this is the thing some people say that he just got overexcited and that he really wanted this and was basically selling the dream but he opened offices in all major cities throughout the uk selling land in this country that didn't exist yeah that's a con artist. that's a con artist <laughs> And he wrote a book, he even wrote a book, kind of an anthropological treatise and tourist guidebook 
under the pseudonym of one of his supposed officers. It was a 355-page leather-bound book which he had mass-produced, basically advertising the brave new world and the new life in this incredible place with St. Joseph, its great magnificent capital city with a domed cathedral. Where did he get his money from? Well, from rich friends who he was making from going to all of these galas. One uh, particularly wealthy guy, Major John William Richard, or William John Richardson, sorry, gave him a stately home to use as the embassy... <laughs> for this country in return for which he was made the ambassador so he started to build up a lot of allies selling this country amongst the British aristocracy and British merchants and the banks could not wait to lend him money they flocked to offer him loans in exchange for land and repayments from tax revenues he sold bonds offering ludicrous returns on investments and started to sell tickets on ships for settlers he was promising all of these settlers land, which would grow anything under the sun. They'd be rich forever. Uh, he particularly, being Scottish, targeted his fellow Scottish countrymen, which was rather dark because he knew that they'd trust him more easily. And he managed to fill up seven ships with settlers. Their crews were sent off prepaid in the Piazian dollars. Again, another currency he created, but which weren't fake this time because such was the fervour around this colony that he created that they were officially minted by the Bank of Scotland as part of a bank loan. So he even got the Bank of Scotland to in just invent a new currency and prepaid all of these people in this completely made-up currency. And he was making an absolute killing at this point. He was rolling in it. He was the celebrity he'd always dreamed of being, the king of this mythical land. And two ships... In fact, eventually four ships, but two ships early on, sailed for this made-up country before the market completely crashed. And basically what happened is the Colombian government's agent in London had written McGregor a £2 million loan on behalf of the Colombian government. And this ambassador then died and the Colombian government went, oh shit, what the fuck did we just do? <laughs> they, they picked up the paperwork and said, we've just lent some bloke for a country that... We know, because we're Colombia and we know what the countries are around here, we know this place doesn't exist. So the market crashed immediately. The Piazan dollar became worthless overnight, so McGregor cut and run and fled to France. But meanwhile, these two ships, when they arrived on the Mosquito Coast full of Scottish settlers, they found literally nothing but jungle and the ruins of an old settlement which had been abandoned for, for decades. And they set up a... This is the Fire Festival. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's exactly the same as Fire Festival. Yeah. They set up a camp whilst the ship sailed off to look for help and food and supplies from the local government, who they were convinced still existed. They thought this place was real, that they just landed the ships in the wrong place. And of course the settlers just started to die. Uh, some were eventually rescued by passing British officials and taken to Belize in British Honduras, but they were all already so sick and they were in cramped conditions on the small ships and a lot of them died. A few. And what sort of numbers are we talking here? Hundreds? So 250 people left for the colony. Some stayed in British Honduras, a couple went to America. Only 40 made it back to the UK of the 250 who'd gone out. And, and meanwhile, bloody Gregor McGregor just fucks off with his fingers in the air, goes, see you later, yep. and does his classic Absol jump on a boat and piss Absolutely, off yeah. He, he and his wife jump on a boat and head to Paris, where they start the exact same scheme again. <laughs> it just Not with the same country. Yep. They make up another one, do nope, they? No, nope. they translated the pamphlets into French. Jesus. His claim was that he had good intentions, but that basically the agents he'd hired in Britain, all of these British noblemen who'd been on his side, had ripped him off and had taken advantage of him, which of course the French were all too willing to believe that the British nobility had been deceitful and untrustworthy, so the French loved it. He was just about to ship the first French colonists off to South America when in 1825 the French government cottoned onto what was happening and indicted them all for fraud. McGregor and his uh, his accomplices who'd come over from England with him. McGregor himself went and hid in the French countryside for three months until he was finally found and arrested. But the trial collapsed because he claimed and maintained in the court that he was the king of this land, that he had been proclaimed king and chief and given this country to, and it was a land of milk and plenty. And the French couldn't prove that it wasn't and couldn't prove that these colonists hadn't just been dumped on the coast by some dubious captain. And the case collapsed. He absolutely got away with it. So uh, what happens to, to Gregor McGregor now then? What, what happened afterwards? Well, he... Presumably his reputation was finally ruined? Well, no. 
Did he run out of places to escape to? (laughs) No, he hadn't, because news spread in London that his trial in France had collapsed, and there was quite a lot of sympathy for him. Some people believed, including some of the colonists who'd made it back, argued that his intentions were honest and good. So many people had been scammed by him that they just didn't want to admit that they got it wrong, admit that they'd been the victim of a con. And so he returned to London and incredibly actually managed the same con a third time (laughs) the same country same country he raised another three hundred thousand pounds the game by this point was was kind of up he had to admit that the colony wasn't working as well as he'd hoped (laughs) that's to say the least yeah and so in 1838 his wife died and he decided that he had had it with britain and actually south america where he'd spent quite a lot of his adult life was where his heart lay so he went back to venezuela in 1838 and as you would expect for a man who is uh, the greatest con artist of all time, he was welcomed as a hero in Venezuela. Thanks to his decades of military service, his bold and brave invasion of Florida, and uh, all of his time in the Wars of Independence, which had now been won. They'd forgotten that he was a total wanker. Well, they never knew in South America. Well, yeah, I get the news didn't spread. The news didn't spread, other than in Colombia, where they realised they'd lent this nutter £2 million. But he was given a general's pension and retired a military hero. And when he died in 1845, he was given a full state funeral buried in the crypts of the cathedral in Venezuela. And there is no mention of his dark secret, and he is still to this day revered as a hero in Venezuela and the world's greatest con artist everywhere else. Awful. What an awful story. It's It's terrible, isn't it? You mentioned about sociopaths earlier. (laughs) Totally sociopathic. Oh, yeah. The fact that you could let 200 people die and then just bugger off and do the same thing again. Yeah, absolutely. Unreal. And he claimed his dying day that he was a victim of a scam himself. Utter nonsense, though. Utter nonsense. Absolutely, even though he was the only person who set foot <laughs> on this island and he knew it was a shithole and he knew it was uninhabitable. Yeah. So charitably, if you're being really charitable to him, you'd say that he was mad and that he really did want to build a colony there and was basically selling the dream. I wouldn't be surprised, Sam. I wouldn't be surprised because <laughs> in all honesty, you know, when you hear about entrepreneurs and we've used the Fire Festival example, some of them are just totally deluded. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. There's certainly an element of this. It sounds like there's an element of this guy just being sociopathic and not actually having the capacity for empathy. Completely. You can't help but feel that he probably was deluding himself into believing that actually it would happen. It would happen. I think so. I think he started to believe his own lies. I think he definitely wanted to get rich. He was a con artist and he was a scammer. But I think he wanted to get rich whilst at the same time genuinely wanting to build a colony and thought that he could basically enrich himself whilst doing great things for the British Empire and having a bit of an adventure. He was just a bit of a Jack the Lad and an adventurer. But yeah, with absolutely tragic results. Absolute dick. <laughs> Idiots can be quite convincing though, Sam. You know, <laughs> yes. You... If only I could think of an example in modern day politics of someone. <laughs> 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 but you know, you, there are some people you can listen to. They believe what they're saying so, so, so deeply. They can be very, very convincing. All of their body language makes you want to believe that what they're saying is true. But actually when you listen to what they're saying, they're talking absolute bollocks. Yeah. But anyway, Gregor McGregor, what an absolute, absolute grade-A wankstain. <laughs> Great. Is there a museum with his medals anywhere? I don't know. I would love to see those medals. That's a very medals. good question. I, I suspect in, in Venezuela probably there is. You'd, yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? You'd think there'd be somewhere in Venezuela. A museum of Gregor McGregor. I will find out. <laughs> I hope that they're made out of Play-Doh and things. I hope that's what he did with his medals. <laughs> Homemade Play-Doh that he made them out of the biscuits oven. and bottle tops. Yeah, <laughs> it painted with some felt tip pens. I think that that then... military campaign went very well. I shall give myself one gold star for being good. <laughs> <laughs> a sticker, a yeah. sticker. I get one on the medal chart. I bet by the end of it, he looked like one of these North Korean generals you see with like a hundred medals, and so they've got so many medals, they're having to stick them on their knees and down their shoes. Yeah, that's right. Or they just have. It just, it just extends out across them, so anyone sitting beside them gets no view of the of the supreme leader, do they? Because they're just, like, they're just covered in medals. <laughs> There's just a, a washing line full of medals hanging down in front of them, and the odd pair of underpants. <laughs> jingle, jangle, jingle. You're like a walking human tambourine of military excellence. <laughs> and there's an episode title, isn't there? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That could be the episode title. Speaking of which, we should probably come up with some kind of topic for next week, shouldn't we? I did this week, Sam. 
So you can go ahead with the next I was thinking earlier how we managed to get lost down a rabbit hole of finding out about comments, and so we should probably do... So we're going to do rabbits. Rabbits! <laughs> <laughs> rabbits holes. Mm. Okay. No, I can, thought... can I suggest we do lost? I thought instead? we could do lost. I thought lost would be a good topic for us to do next week. What is history if it's not getting lost? In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts. So if you want to get in touch with us, please, please do. You can email us. That was geniuscast at gmail.com. Yes, it's a free email. You can get in touch with us on our Twitter, which is that underscore was underscore genius. You can search for that was genius on Facebook. Uh, or you can look at us on Instagram. Look at our selfies and our pictures of our dinner. And our backsides. And, <laughs> and yeah. occasionally our backsides. I think we should probably wrap this up, shouldn't we? We're not really getting anywhere. <laughs> let's, let's wrap it up. We'll see you next week, everyone. Bye. Bye. Hello everyone, it's me again. You made it this far. Give yourself a pat on the back. Since you've clearly enjoyed this podcast, we would love it if you'd rate us and subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. It makes us look good, and it makes us smile, which is a double whammy of positive karma for you. Even better, let your friends know about us on social media. It really makes a world of difference. We'll see you next week.